the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It's another Sunday where I realize that the sequence hymn says ten times more than I expect to say in a tenth of the time in a way that is memorable. Name him, brothers, name him with love strong as death. You have this wonderful text by Carolyn Noel with these powerful images, especially the last verse. For all wreaths of empire meet upon his brow. We see the crown of thorns literally jammed into his forehead and the blood running down. And then the blood in our hearts confessing him the king of glory. Glory and suffering, triumph and tragedy constantly being juxtaposed. And the wonderful sense of just, I don't know what the word is, determination that you get from Vaughan Williams when he's in these minor modes. He gives us a march in triple time. There's something about that that gives it a lilt and a skip, and at the same time reminds us that this is something that requires all the courage we have to serve Jesus and to go into an always uncertain future toward a very certain future. So, it is said that at All Souls, every Sunday is really Friday, a Good Friday, that is. A good Friday, at least, is the end of our perpetual Lent, and with it comes the promise of something better and bigger and brighter ahead. Tragedy gives way to triumph. It's all the more striking, then, that for Christ the King, placed as it is, at really the end of the liturgical year, we go not to the triumph, not to the ascension or even to the resurrection, let alone these vivid apocalyptic images of the revelation to, uh, to John, but the place we return to, the place from which we branch out, is the cross. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, right away, the cross at the same time is bringing to mind the throne of glory. The reference to that time when the two disciples, James and John, are looking to Jesus and saying, when you are sitting on your throne in glory, where are we going to be? Who gets to sit on your left and right? They said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in your glory. If they stayed long at the foot of the cross, and they don't apparently, I don't know if they would have made the connection, but the connection is there to be found by all of us. Did they also recall the words that Jesus had said to them that same day, some time before, when none of this was on their horizon? And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so with you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The whole of the truth of the gospel is in here, of course. 
And the truth points to the difference between God and human beings. We're going to look at things that are similar. We're going to look at things that are different. But we're looking here now at power and the way God uses power, how God rules, and how we think we would rule if we were God, which has nothing to do with how God rules. But nonetheless, we spend a great deal more of our time than we should imagining what it would be like if we were God. In fact, we have been reminded recently once more how well we deal with power, which is not well, and how well we respond to people with power, to the bullies around the block, who those indeed who lord it over others. We think it makes them wonderful leaders, very strong. We shall see. In their commentary on Colossians, Brian Walsh and Sylvia Casemat write, and I quote, in an image-saturated world, a world of ubiquitous corporate logos permeating your consciousness, a world of dehydrated and captive imaginations in which we are too numbed, satiated, and co-opted to be able to dream of life otherwise, a world in which the empire of global economic affluence has achieved the monopoly of our imaginations. It's a wonderful turn of phrase. They're re-paraphrasing, actually, the text from Colossians. We heard that great hymn and saying, what stops us responding to God in his glory? And it's that we are captive. Our imaginations are numb, anesthetized, shut down by the affluence in which we live, by the power we have at our command. We're intoxicated, and toxic means poisoned, by the power we have in this great nation, in this great Western culture in which we live. But for then, as for now, Christ is the image of the invisible God in this world. Then, as now, Christ is the image of the invisible God. For this world. Problem is, as we are also being reminded, that Christ is invisible for most of us. With the fracturing beyond any possible reconstruction of the universe in which you and I lived, which was called evangelicalism, that is gone now forever as a coherent force. We realize how little time we sought to spend with Christ, with Jesus. We had our own notions of civic religion. They were based on righteousness, heaven knows, on morality. But on God's way with power? I think not. The God of which Christ is the Logos, the Word, the one and only revelation. Think of it, Christ is the only window into the reality of God. How often do we seek our window somewhere else? The only window and door is a God whose only concern for us is this, that we become humans as he became human, that we learn how to take this time on the planet and learn how to be human beings. God invested in this project of sending himself as the perfect human being to live and to die. We're looking for God in glory somewhere else, however. 
He's not asking us to learn how to be God. That's what we want to do all the time. Decide who's saved, who isn't, what's going to go on, who's judged, how's it going to be. God's saying, no, that's my job, you know, my job. Your job is to learn how to be human. Not easy for us. And he had been human on the cross, on the dead wood of the cross, when he stretched out his arms and let the world do its worst. God in Christ let the world have its way with him, doing everything that was unimaginable. The Romans had made of crucifixion the most unimaginable form of execution. It was so dreaded that the Romans were able to co-opt those they made captive, to come alongside them and say, we have only one God, and he is Caesar, only one king, and that's Caesar, as they have done the night before they take Jesus to the cross. They didn't want that. That was a display of raw power at work, power speaking and getting its answer. But this, says Luther, this place that we dread, is where we look to see God. God in Christ, King Jesus, not on the throne, on the cross. Not in resplendent glory, but in a wretched figure of dead flesh, in which in one awful moment had been invested the sins of the whole world. Every rotten deed that every one of us would ever and will ever do. The one who took not just our sins, but who became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. I've yet to see a crucifix that comes anywhere near to expressing that. And yet this was the only transaction acceptable to God by which he chose to buy us back. And the cost was to him. He could have brought in Jesus, on his way to this cross at the last minute, an army of angels to come down from heaven and take him away. And the thieves, the soldiers, the crowd, everyone is going through that, asking that same question in their mind as he is led to the place of execution over and over. They're saying, you had the power. We saw the miracles. If you still have the power, why don't you use it? What's power if it's not put to use, if it's not exercise? Leadership 101, muscle, you got to use it. The leaders scoffed at him, at Jesus on the cross, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Messiah. The soldiers also saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. One of the criminals deriding him and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself. If then, if you have power, you use it. If you don't, you don't. Or you could at least try to bluff it. That'll get you a long way in this world. But Jesus says nothing. He utters not a mumbling word, as the old spiritual said. Because when Jesus has been handed over in the garden, he has gone from action to passion. At that moment, he has gone from victory to defeat, from strength to suffering. And in all of this, he is showing us love, the love of God. Because love suffers. Love suffers all things. Love allows. Love is vulnerable. Love is ruled 
by the beloved. This is how God loves. Right now on the cross, we may wonder, is that how God loves, pouring out his whole being for us to keep this world spinning on its axis, to draw sinners from their places of imprisonment, the dead from their tombs, their places of entrapment, to freedom, to him? Does God suffer? Does he allow it, permit himself the privilege of suffering for and with and like those he claims to love? Claims to? Is not the cross enough proof for us of this love? Yet how often do we find ourselves imagining that really, when you step back from the cross, it is some light thing, some trifle, some wager to an all-powerful God a bet entered into in a chance moment to see what would come of it. How could God suffer, we ask? But if it does not, how can it be love? Or is love love? Does this world that God made merit such love, love like we love at our best, a love that suffers in tragedy when it is rejected and joys in triumph? when it is accepted, when the beloved freely responds to our offers of love, saying, yes, amen, so be it. Can we conceive that this whole exercise, with all the groans that this creation makes, is for love? Love found, love lost, love found again. And love to be love must be freely given. That it is not enough, thank you, that we obey, no small thing. That we do what God tells us, yes, and that God wants, obedience, our response to power, acknowledging that God's might is always right. But how infinitely better than speaking back, saying yes to power, is to do what God wants, which is to want what God wants, not just to do what God wants, to want with all our hearts what God wants. That's what love really is. For God's sake, to what want God wants, because we have found one thing, that we live for God's happiness and not for our own, that our lives are not our own, and that far from stifling our freedom, this is our freedom. This is grace. We have much to learn about power in the years to come and much to lose. We may have started already losing, and if so, we will find that the victory for Christians is so often in the losing, in seeing all that this world offers as something well lost in exchange for that which is despised and considered of no worth. In Christ, whatever we have wrought, that partakes of the glory of this world, that was authorized by the powers and principalities, is of no consequence. The size of our bank account, our real estate holdings, our uh, the fund we've set aside for our retirement, none of this matters. The names we may or may not have inscribed 
on the buildings we've built do not matter. At the end, our names all end up carved on slabs of granite or marble in a cemetery somewhere. We, like the thief, the terrorist on his cross, get to take up our cross each day. And for us, that's enough. That's all we ask. That's all we're given. The privilege of taking up our cross. And the God with whom we are so often at cross purposes unites his life with ours every moment of every day, lives his life through us with every breath of every moment. From the cross, yes, through the grave to victory at last. Then the thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen.